Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about what's happening in American politics and taking direct action for global awakening. My first guest is David K. Johnston who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author. His latest book is It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. David has lectured on reporting techniques, tax policy, and ethics on every continent except Antarctica. Johnston is known for his skill at explaining complex economic, law enforcement, and tax issues, for which he was awarded a Pulitzer Prize in 2001. Long before it was a kitchen table topic, Johnston was documenting America's growing income inequality and exposing subtle government policies that create wealth and want. And I want to mention one thing about the DC report that has grabbed my attention and my heart and mine as they are covering government and what politicians do, not what politicians say. Welcome back, David K. Johnston. Well, Lisa, thank you for having me on again. Oh, well, it is a pleasure. Uh, you and I have had some good conversations, and I am eager to jump into your alignment of doing what you love as your passion and it making you exceedingly happy. Well, you know, if you find something that gives meaning to your life, whatever it is, it will lengthen your life, it'll make you happier, it will keep you focused, it's I think important to focus on others or benefiting others, not yourself. I mean, there are people who are all about themselves. Their their whole life is tied up with how many commas are on their net worth statement. You know, if you get three, you're a billionaire. But uh, well, <laughs> well, having having enough money is important, and having money is nice. Uh, life is not about that. Life is about what what do you do? What about yourself? What about your family? What about your community? What about your country and the rest of the world? And so when I was very young, I remember as a boy living on a uh, orange ranch in the town of Orange, California, until I was eight years old, talking with men who had fought in World War I, uh, one of them in, in the Spanish-American War, who were quite old by then, and asking about things and thinking all often about the future. What would life be like? When I met my, my wife, and we've been married uh, more than 36 years, she kept saying to me, you're always talking about the future. You're always talking about what you're going to do in the future. And one day after we've married about 25 years, she came home. She, my wife's the CEO of a large charitable endowment she built up from virtually nothing to about a half a billion dollars. And she said, you know, I, I had an epiphany today. Everything you kept talking about doing in the future, not things you brought up once, but things you brought up again and again and again, you made it happen. And I went, well, of course I did. She said, how'd you do that? 
And I said, you know, you make decisions that go in the direction that you want to go, that your heart wants to go. And you're not in control of everything, but you can generally go where you want to go if you're always thinking about the future and how you're going to get there. And my sort of, I guess, maybe a little cynical observation I make is I'm 69 years old now, is run your life as if it will continue forever, but have your affairs in order because someday you won't make it to the end of this set. <laughs> Are you there? I'm there. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. That yeah, was my that, joke. No, that was it. The yeah, yeah, this, that, yeah, the whole, no, the hard drop. I got it. I got it. Most definitely. We tend to think of investigative reporters or the image of the, the journalists from back in the day in the fifties and the sixties with the, the big trench coat and the, and the yep. hat, right? But like yep. detectives as a bit cold and cynical, cynical rather. And I've sensed you as a much more warm, fuzzy kind of guy. Well, a lot of my peers, by the time they're my age, are fairly paranoid and unhappy. And it's true of a lot of detectives that I've known. And so one of the lessons I instilled in myself when I was young was take a break and go write about other things. Don't constantly be looking in the sewer, look in the garden. So I've written stories about making paper, restoring documents, artists, things like that periodically to make sure I keep a balanced view of life and of the world. And, you know, I, I had a colleague once who, uh, at when she had her sort of going away party, staff at the New York Times was telling about how well, in labor her, for her fourth child, she had her laptop and she was working on a story. And I just thought to myself, no, 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 no. Absolutely not. Have some balance in your life. Yeah. The balance. Speaking of which, I know that we are having this discussion as you sit in your garden. Yep. Years ago, I was hired to write a proposal for a movie about Donald Trump. I didn't know who it was for. I was just told I had one weekend to do it. And it paid very well, about seven months salary at the New York Times. And I put that money into turning my backyard of just plain grass into a lovely garden with two stone patios, a formal and informal one and a waterfall and lights and very nice plants and trees. I could have bought a big fancy car, which would be in the junkyard by now. And when the weather is nice where I live now in Rochester, New York, I like right now, I work out here. And it's been one of the great joys of my life to have uh, what we call the Tim Burton Garden, because years later, I found out the person who hired me for the movie, which was never made, was the film director, Tim Burton. And I got to tell you, given his absurdist view of the world, oh, I hope he makes a movie about Donald Trump, whether it was my idea or something else. Well, that leads me to the book. You know, the book is, it's even worse than you think, what the Trump administration is doing to America. And you have followed Donald Trump's work for decades, is my understanding. Longer than anybody else, 30 years. Yeah, it's a long time. Talk a little bit about the book and what prompted you to write it. Well, I did a biography of Donald Trump before the election uh, with 40 pages of source notes so people could check all my work. And when he won the Electoral College, um, I immediately said, the journalists are going to do a real good job. They did a terrible job covering the campaign. They're going to do a real good job now of covering the White House. Who's going to cover the government? Steve Bannon has said they're going to destroy the government as we know it. Uh, his term was to deconstruct the administrative state. And, you know, they, they force scientists and diplomats who we have invested a fortune in both of those people in developing their skills out of the government. And they put, they've censored their reports and a whole bunch of, of things that are very damaging to the country's prosperity and to our liberties. And I just said, this is not going to be covered. If, if you're a journalist and you get to Washington, 
especially at one of the big papers like the New York Times or the LA Times, if you're told you're on the regulatory beat, to most reporters, that's like a sentence of death. How quickly can I get out of here? I want to go cover politics. Not me. I'm a guy who went, yeah, I want to tell you what your government is doing. So it's even worse than you think in the hardback edition covers the first 250 days of what the Trump administration was doing. And a lot of it's right there in the public record. It's just journalists don't cover it. And you also have to understand management, government policies, regulatory law. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I taught regulatory law for eight years at Syracuse University's College of Law and Graduate Business School because I studied this stuff. And when I was a young journalist full-time and also going to college, I took courses in things like public administration management because I want to understand how these government agencies work. And so in the book, I tell you about here's what's happened to the State Department, the EPA, the Interior Department that you don't know. And it's frankly a really awful story of uh, what's being done to our government. And that's not to argue that we have, you know, this perfectly well-run government by the least. I mean, I spent my whole life exposing things wrong with government. But it's another thing to just go in as a wrecking crew and to tell scientists who have serious, uh, well-done work, you're not allowed to use the term climate change. You know, you're, you're not allowed to go to a conference about the, the area that your field of study. It doesn't even make sense. And it's quite frightening. Well, it makes sense if you believe, as the people around Donald do, that the purpose of the government is to help you get richer. And what, an earlier book that I, series of books that I wrote, Perfectly Legal on Taxes, Free Lunch on Subsidies uh, to Corporations and Wealthy People, and the fine print about limiting competition, which increases the profits of the remaining firms, that was very much about people who get rich off the government. It is easier to mine money from the Treasury to mine money from the Congress by getting maybe one word sometimes changed in a law than to go earn it in the competitive marketplace. And and I say that, by the way, as someone who on the side a decade or so ago with one of my sons started a company. It's a little two-bit company. We manage one hotel on the Jersey Shore. But uh, I, you know, I've been on the business side of things, too. And I, 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 uh, so I, I understand the other side of the street here. And, uh, you know, the worst thing that could have happened to our little hotel management company was if somebody on this island we're on, Ocean City, New Jersey, built another hotel because it would lower our profits. So I, I understood the inclination of not liking competition. Well, here's the thing. Does the government exist for the people and for the benefit of the people? I mean, that's my view of it. Not, well, not- Lisa, one of the slogans we use at uh, our nonprofit, non-advertising news service, it's all volunteers, almost all volunteers, DC report is it's our government. We should act like owners. Yeah. A lot of Americans have been outsourcing the government to people, not participating in it, uh, not paying attention. And the result when you outsource it is the people who make money off the government begin turning it to their interests. And it's things like this to go back to your happiness thing, doing what you want to do and keeping doing it. You know, I have no plans to retire. I told my wife the other day, you know, I could spend the rest of my life for a thousand years doing what I'm doing and I'd be perfectly happy. Unfortunately, I don't get a thousand years. If I'm lucky, I get maybe 20 more. Well, we'll hope longer than that. We're going to take a break to learn more about the work of David K. Johnston 
and DC Report, go to dcreport.org and also davidkjohnston.com. On Twitter, he's at David KJ, and that's David C-A-Y-J. And on Facebook, David K. The book that we're talking about today is It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to the show where we are investigating what's happening in American politics and talking about taking direct action for global awakening. Let's return to the conversation with David K. Johnston. We're talking about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness and his new book. It's even worse than you think what the Trump administration is doing to America. But also David does something really interesting. He runs DCReport.org. It's a volunteer, all volunteer journalism platform covering government, what politicians do, but not what they say. By mouthful, you do so much, David, for a young man. Well, it, it was going to say, it keeps you young and, and involved and uh, is good for you. Good for me, at least. Well, it's good for the soul. And I think that's why I like talking with you so much is because you are somebody who is pursuing your joy through your passion, through your mission, and through good work you know, that keeps people educated and informed? Well, if you do something you care about and you have a purpose in life, all the research shows you'll do better, you'll be happier, you're less likely to be depressed, you're less likely to, you know, get into pathological behaviors like drinking too much yeah. and, and do things in balance. Don't, you know, don't overdo anything. Well, I want to I ask you about... Um, agelessness. We're going to do that in a second. But, you know, it just dawned on me that I, I have not asked you about the time that you have spent and continue to spend in your life exposing the dark sides of America, corruption, spies, foreign agents, even solving vicious murders and hunting down and confronting a killer. And I admire that, you know, that living in the dark side and finding a little happiness there. Well, yes, and it you also the reward is, you know, you you can make things be better. In the case of where I hunted down this particularly vicious uh, killer, a young man had been tried four times for this crime before they finally convicted him. He was sentenced by a judge who said, um, "Mr. Cooks, this court believes you are innocent, but I am hereby sentencing you to life in prison." And he got a fifth trial because of me. And, and while the real killer could never be tried because all the witnesses identified the wrong guy, uh, Mr. Cooks did not spend the rest of his life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Yeah. And, and so there was a social good there. Uh, the same thing with, you know, some foreign agents that I've exposed and, and spies. Good things flow to that. Sometimes nothing happens when you do an investigative piece. And sometimes a piece you didn't think would have a big impact has a big, big impact. I mean, you don't know how the world's going to react to it, but you do the work, you do it as best you can, and bend over backwards to be fair, especially to the people you know you like the least. Um, go, go, out way, go out of your way to be to be fair to them. Well, because readers will believe you a lot more if their attitude is they're reading something, even as you're demolishing someone's you know behavior. Uh, and I've you know gotten C CEOs of big companies canned is if they say, boy, they're really going out of their way to be fair to this guy. 
Yeah. It's generous. It's very generous when you know somebody is, is, uh, up to no good and you can, um, do your best to, to be fair. And, you know, in your book, it's worse than you think what the Trump administration is doing to America. I want to go back to something that you said in the last segment about kind of what is going on under our nose because we're not paying attention. We're so busy focused on the craziness in the news and, and the environment and the EPA, because I, there is a lot of stuff being undone in this country that is going to have repercussions for the rest of our lives, our children's lives, our children's children's lives, and in perpetuity. Right. Well, you know, for example, a number of things have been done to allow companies that have been required since the 70s to clean up the air they put out from their operations in the water, get toxics out of them as best we can. We're not perfect at it. That's being undone. Now, I'm 69 years old. I'm not going to get cancer, heart disease, or asthma because of this, but I have grandchildren. Yeah. My neighbors have grandchildren. You know, they are the ones who are going to pay the price for these kinds of policies and their policies, uh, strangely, and many people probably will have a hard time believing this, but uh, cleaning up the environment also uh, actually improves the economy. Uh, keeping our roads properly repaired and our bridges repaired saves lives. Having regulations that make sense save lives. I, for eight years, I taught the law of the ancient world at Syracuse University's College of Law. I'm not Ooh, a lawyer, but I a, taught it. What a great topic. And, and also taught business, uh, graduate business students. And the purpose of that was to help them understand why is the world the way it is today? Why does the law say this and not that? Different societies have different rules. But from human experience, we learn what works and the object of a society should be over time. How do we make this better? How do we make lives more pleasant? How do we make lives longer? How do we take away as much misery as we can? Uh, and to do that, you have to understand the principle and the theory underlying the kinds of things so you can spot bad regulations from ones that are beneficial. Well, and I think this opens us up for a discussion on morality and philosophy and going back to the purpose of government and the purpose of ourselves on this planet, if not to make it better for not only ourselves and our family, but for others. Yes. And I think one of the most important aspects of that is integrity and honor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and not and not being cynical. Today on Twitter, I've responded to a bunch of people uh, who responded to tweets I had put up by, you know, answering them and then saying, you know, don't be cynical. That doesn't make the world any better. Or don't think you're powerless. You, in fact, can do things. Uh, they can be as simple as voting or driving somebody else to the polls to make sure they get to vote, even if they're going to vote for the candidate you don't like. But be engaged in making society better. You want, at the end of your life, to be able to say, you know, I did my little part to make things better, because there are lots of people whose lives, of course, make things much worse. You know, they commit crimes, they, they damage other people's lives. Uh, you know, I don't want to be one of those people. And, and to do that successfully and be happy about it, you also need to have, you know, some balance in your life. You know, I did all the investigations I've done over the last 50 years while raising eight children. Oh, my. Eight kids? And I spent, and I spent 41 years being dad. I sort of chuckle at the men my age who, you know, marry a 30-year-old and have more children. And I'm like, really? You're going to go to your child's high school graduation in a wheelchair? But, you know, there's a time and a place for everything. And 
keeping in mind that, you know, you, you want to, when you, when you're growing up, you want to figure out who you are. And there are some parts of who you are you can't do anything about. That's how you're wired. You, if you don't accept that, you're not going to have a happy life. Secondly, find love. Once you've found yourself, find love. Now, some people are happy to live alone. Good for them. But for most of us, we need to find enduring companionship and someone to share our adventure with. And be kind to people. Even people in my business whose career, you're, you know, your stories are going to destroy you know, you don't jump up and down and go, oh, yeah, I got that guy. You say, I'm sorry I had, this had to happen, but it was important that this be brought to light uh, because other people will benefit from this. Never, ever, ever, no matter what you do, do something dishonest because someone will have leverage over you. I've seen a whole bunch of, of men uh, my generation die, uh, usually of heart attacks or strokes when they were in their 40s and early 50s because they had compromised themselves in order to keep a paycheck and had done things that they wish they hadn't done. And, you know, you don't, you don't want to live a life like that. You want to be able to, to, to go to sleep at night and, and relax and refresh yourself so that you can go out and do something the next day. Yeah. But in, in a sense, these principles, this recipe for a good life is about the moral compass. And I think the work that you're doing with dcreport.org in really letting us know what's going on, you know, giving us the facts of what's going on and allow us or makes us realize that there's, there's a whole lot of charades happening out there. Yes. And there's a whole lot of not looking at things. You know, there are cities in this country of a quarter million people, like the one I live five blocks outside of Rochester, New York, who there's no journalists covering them. When, when I started out, when I was 17 years old, writing for two shopper newspapers in Santa Cruz, California, for minimum wage, uh, every week there were five or on occasion six reporters at the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. So I called up one of the supervisors who, uh, well, I knew his father, I didn't know him, uh, and said, how many reporters come every week? Because he's now a supervisor. And uh, he said one, maybe two on occasion. And, you know, you have to have watchdogs. You have to have people looking. The whole scandal in Bell, California, that the L.A. Times won the gold medal Pulitzer Prize for, where the, you know, the city manager was getting, I think, 800000 and the police chief of this little town of around 40,000 people was getting uh, 500000 and the council members a quarter million. Whoa. They did, all that, they did all that in open meetings because there were no journalists there. There was no citizen watchdog there. And in fact, the the woman who tipped them to it actually had to call the paper three times to get somebody to listen to her. Uh, And then they got onto the story and it was a terrific story. And, you know, you want whatever you're doing, you know, have a purpose to it. If, if, If you end up in a position where you just have a job, it's not a career, it's not something, you know, you want to do, it's the work you have to do, then find something else that gives meaning to your life. Volunteer. Spend it on your family. Develop a skill or, or a hobby and, and develop yourself. You know, this makes me think of, you know, the concept of am I my brother's keeper? Now, this might come out yes, sounding weird. Are, I, I, I believe it. I, I believe it's my responsibility to be my brother's keeper, not, not because I want to tell my brother what to do, but because if my brother is healthy and my brother is good, then his family is good and healthy and they're contributing and that helps the well-being of the people closest to me. Absolutely. And, 
you know, when I travel around the world, one of the things that I, which I didn't, I didn't do till I was in my forties. I couldn't afford it because I had all these kids. Um, one of the things I began to see was that in prosperous societies where it wasn't just a handful of people who had all the money, there was less crime. It was safer to be on the streets. People's lives were more pleasant. You know, you, my wife and I once spent three days in Stockholm looking for potholes. Because if you listen to certain radio talk show hosts, you know, because the Swedes are the uh, first or second highest tax people in the country by standard measure, in the world by standard measures, uh, supposedly that's a place where everything should be horrible, right? The the buildings should be falling apart, the cars are beaters, the streets are falling apart, there's no goods in the stores. You go to Stockholm, we spent three days over a period of a week we couldn't find one. I mean, they thought we were kind of crazy. We'd stop, you know, police officers and bus drivers and go to city hall um, because they take care of the society around them and people are happy. Where does surveys show the happiest people in the world live? Denmark. Yep. Uh, yeah. There's no, there are people, there's no anxiety about it. Nobody except in America and any modern country goes bankrupt because of health care. Yeah. Because all these societies have figured that out. They've gotten it off the backs of business so it doesn't interfere with business. And put it on the books of society. And as Donald Trump once said to me 30 years ago, I asked him, well, what do you think about health care? He said, it should be like the roads. When you need one, you just drive down it. Not, not his attitude today, of no, course. No, no. But, but, you know, you can create a happier society. Now, you also want to keep in mind that, as somebody much smarter than I once said, you know, you look at the history of Europe and the peacefulness of the people in Switzerland and the violence and, and warfare of people in Italy – but Italy gave us great painters and artists and opera. And what did we get from Switzerland? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. David K. Johnson, thanks for joining us on the show. To learn more, please visit dcreport.org or visit davidkjohnston.com on Twitter at David K. J. And that's C-A-Y-J. And Facebook, it's David Kay. The book we've been talking about today, it's even worse than you think what the Trump administration is doing to America. And I would love for you to come back and give us sort of the uh, the report on the state of affairs from DC Report. Lisa, I would be happy to do that. Oh, and we would be happy to have you. Here comes the break. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. the show where we are talking about what's happening in American politics and taking direct action for a global awakening. My next guest is Monk Yoon Ru. You would think that a monk would avoid the limelight and controversy, but not this one. He weighs in on the great issues of today and how we humans are undermining our very own existence, not just environmentally, but by creating a toxic focus on self-interest that poisons our politics, lifestyle, health, parenting, technology, human interaction, and so much more. Let's bring him on and start the conversation. Welcome, Monk Yoon Ro. 
Thank you so much and for so beautifully pronouncing my name, too. I rehearsed that. (laughs) (laughs) Time well spent, it seems. I want to have our listeners kind of know a little bit about you. You were born Arthur Rosenfeld in New York City, right? I was. And you have a a really uh, an illustrious academic background, educated at Yale, Cornell, University of California, and then you were ordained as a monk in Guangzhou, China. So as far as the illustrious academic background goes, as I think about how I narrowly squeaked by my undergraduate degree by gambling and playing backgammon to win some money back for a professor, I I don't know that... uh, (laughs) My alma maters would see this so illustrious, but but I certainly did have um, more than my fair share of school. Yes, indeed so. So what took you from Ivy League academic to becoming a monk? So the upbringing that I had as the son of a, a very, very famous cardiologist, my dad, Dr. Isidore Rosenfeld, was on Fox News for years as the house call doctor and for years before that, decades before that, was you know arguably the most famous cardiologist in the world. He took care of kings and princes and captains of industry and Hollywood stars and moguls of all kinds. You know the people who at that time ran the world, I guess. And these people were in a constant stream through our New York City apartment, and I got to meet them up close and personal. And although some of them were wonderful people. Uh, and who, from whom I learned many things, there was an overarching lesson to the experience of being in contact with that stratum of society. And it was that although those people were uh, emblematic of everything that we are taught, we should want and want to be, want to have and want to be. They were powerful, wealthy, smart, beautiful, influential, uh, famous, and on and on. To a large measure, they were not particularly happy folks. And I remember, you know, many instances of sad things. They didn't get along with their families. They were depressed. They, uh, they committed crimes and so on. And so when I tried to juxtapose the reality of what I saw in those folks with the story I was being told about them, and I could not really reconcile the facts with the fantasy, I began to wonder what other bills of goods I was being sold about uh, politics, social issues, religion, economics, you know, basically about life. And so very early, and presumably I was born with a questing gene, but very early, and you can imagine what a great delight I was to my parents, I just kept asking and seeking and searching for deeper answers, feeling all the while that I was looking at the surface of the pond, but I really wanted to see what was underneath and what was swimming and living down there in the levels below the obvious. Your curiosity has led you to pen more than 15 books, award-winning novels that have been optioned for films, You were also the host of the hit national public TV show, Longevity Tai Chi. I mean, you're an inquiring sort of guy. So, I I mean, I think that's it. And as far as writing books, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, books allow something that is in such dramatic short supply in our modern anti-culture here in America. 
And that is the opportunity to think deeply about things. So, you know, the hyperlink and the internet uh, has been trained our attention to such a brief little spot that we just don't really think and question deeply about things anymore because we're too busy passively receiving messages and being entertained. And so, you know, I grew up in an era when that wasn't the case. And now I see so much of that and I am keenly aware of that. Well, I I wanted to just jump in here and uh, say that, you know, I get what you're saying because I've got two young adult children and the joke in my house is that whenever they use a vocabulary word, a true vocabulary word, that it's cause for celebration, right? Because kids today are looking for the shortcut, you know, to get from here to there with the least amount of work and resistance. The book that you recently written, Mad Monk Manifesto, A Prescription for Evolution, Revolution, and Global Awakening, is a good read. It is a very good read because it, it really asks us to think deeply about ourselves and the world around us. Talk a little bit about the book and what you mentioned is the sixth great extinction. So the book is constructed uh, in accordance with Taoist philosophy and the way Taoist philosophy functions in the world as a sort of a porous philosophy slash religion. And the way Taoists look at things, we have to begin with ourselves and move out from the changes we make on ourselves to the larger and larger and larger world. So just as a quick aside, for listeners who have not heard of Taoism, people in the United States actually know Taoism, they just don't know that they know it. And the reason they know it is that if you've, if you've ever watched a Star Wars movie uh, with Jedi Knights and uh, the Rebellion and the Empire and all that, then you are familiar, at least in passing, with Taoism because it is what inspired George Lucas to create that world. And in that world, the Taoists are the rebels and the empire, of course, is, you know, our government. And it was the government that came, that was, uh, in power at the time that Taoism became popular as a movement. And that was sort of Confucianism. So empire has a lot of rules. Taoism doesn't like those. It likes free inquiry and self cultivation. So the book, follows the idea that if you drop a stone into the water, it the ripples that uh, radiate outwards from the point of impact represent what your uh, work on yourself does to those around you. So a quick example, if you, for example, b- decide that you want to become vegan, you decide that, boy, you know, with what's happening on planet Earth, there's not enough food to feed everybody. And if we go to plant-based diets, we are healthier and we have less of a destructive uh, effect on the world. And, of course, we don't cause unnecessary suffering by killing anything to eat it, uh, at least not killing sentient beings. So, you know, you go to Thanksgiving dinner and everybody notices you pass on the turkey and then uh, you know, a few weeks later or a few years later, your family reconvenes and they see uh, that, you know, look, Lisa, how how beautiful you are, how healthy you are, how 
bright eyed and, and focused and awake you are and what a great bikini figure you have and all your friends go, uh, wow, you know, wow. There it is. <laughs> I, I want, you know, I want, I want what she has, uh, you know, and so then they begin to try, you know, maybe, maybe I could do that vegan thing, you know, and, and so, you know, little by little, we, we lead by example and we live in, in the Taoist way not so much in order to create example because we're not that outwardly focused, but those things happen. And those, you know, the, these effects radiate next from your family to your community and, and, you know, from your community to your, to your village and your city and then outward into your country and so on. So eventually those ripples affect, you know, the global environment. And you asked me about the sixth great extinction and in the uh, fossil record, we were able to uh, determine that five previous times in the history of the Earth, cataclysmic changes caused the extinction of vast, vast quantities of living creatures, high percentages, uh, particularly of larger animals that lived, what would I have to call the megafauna, that lived on our planet. And, and we, of course, are megafauna. We're, we're large uh, carnivores. We are very energy consumptive and so on. And so now it's clear that this uh, time in the history of the earth is characterized by the dominance of the human being, which really acts, we as a human species, uh, not as individuals necessarily, but as a species, we behave much like a cancer on the face of the planet in the sense that we are causing toxic effluence. We have po we're poisoning the planet. We are out competing other creatures, uh, the way cancer cells do, uh, in the, in the body. And the, the analog analogy is not a pretty one, but it's quite apt, um, as far as the environment goes. And so, you know, this is, uh, the, the construction of Mad Monk Manifesto is, is to follow what consequences the changes that we make in our own lives have on the world around us. And if we can see those consequences, we can begin to exercise some control over them. Well, the book is, is really lovely. It's, it's written well. It's laid out well. In the first section of the book, you look at relax, relaxing and rectifying the way you can restore peace, calm, introspection and sanity to ourselves. Welcome. I welcome that. Amen. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. People often talk about enlightenment. There's a, a fun little phrase that was attributed by Alan Watts to uh, Suzuki, the great Zen teacher, uh, that, you know, before enlightenment, uh, chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry water, but two inches above the ground. <laughs> and and, and I, I love that one. But I, I have to say that I think because our brain is um, primarily a filter its major function is to filter out the incredible amount of input that we're getting, cosmic rays and bosons and noises that, you know, that are out there that are beyond our sensorium. The brain focuses all, uh, filters all this input so that we are able to look at just a very narrow slice of reality and deal with that. It allows us to function in the world, the brain does. So, when I, when people talk about enlightenment as, as, you know, waking up, um, I, I say, well, maybe it's more about uncovering. So if we can 
turn off some of those filters, we can willfully become more aware of what is going on in the world, not only in our own bodies, but as a consequence of everything we do. And that is a joyful and scintillating process. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the awakening, right? The awakening or the, or the, the thawing. Thawing is an interesting one. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, so many of us are frozen in our lives or frozen with fear, perhaps, of the unknown and all the uncertainty in our, in our climate right now. So one of the things about fear is that it leads inevitably to hate. So we have to address our fears not only for the sake of our own happiness and the experience of living on the individual level, but also because of the consequences that fear generates in the world around us, not only in terms of how we treat each other, but also in terms of how we treat all other sentient beings on the planet. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation about Mad Monk Manifesto, a prescription for evolution, revolution, and global awakening with author and my guest, Monk Yoon Ro. To learn more, please visit monkyoonro.com. Let me spell it out for you. M-O-N-K-Y-U-N. R-O-U.com, on Twitter at Monk Yoon Ro, and on Facebook, that page is also Mad Monk Manifesto, with a hyphen between Mad Monk and then Monk Manifesto. Once again, that Facebook page is Mad Monk Manifesto, with a hyphen between each of those words. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. We are talking about taking direct action for global awakening. My guest today is Monk Yoon Ru. Let's return to that conversation. So Yoon, prior to the break, we were talking about really the tenets of Taoism, what is involved, what is really what we're looking at, you know, as human beings and the evolution of, of the world that we live in. Let's talk a little bit about leadership, being our own best leader and the qualities of great leadership. So we call um, frugality, uh, compassion, and humility our three treasures in Taoism. And, and I should just make the aside, I suppose, that, you know, it's often said that all religions have essentially the same message, 
but the, the differences are, are sort of, you know, they're all ice cream, but which flavor do you like? And, and maybe there's some, there may be some truth to that. But in the case of Taoism, I'm not so sure that the relevant parts of it are not as much a philosophy as, as a religion in our modern world. And that helps to avoid some of the stigma of um, the infrastructure and the layers between uh, holiness and personal being uh, that exist in other faiths. So very clearly, Taoism tells us to follow the ways of nature. The ways of nature, by the way, are not always, uh, you know, peaches and cream. There's, there's a lot of, of gritty stuff in nature, but Taoists don't shy away from it. And Taoists began their search by sitting for countless hours long before there was Facebook and Twitter and long before there were, <laughs> there were computers. And, you know, they would just sit and watch the unfolding of nature, but they watched it with very brilliant minds and very keen eyes. And they learned a great deal about how things work in the world. So Taoism, even in this modern world, is a very practical and useful philosophy. And when it comes to leadership, you know, we, we say there's a very famous Taoist book that maybe is the most famous of all. They say it's been translated more times uh, into different languages than than any other book uh, other than the Judeo-Christian Bible. And that book is called the Tao Te Ching. And that book was written by a, a putative character called Lao Tzu. Uh, some people spell that L-A-O-T-Z-U, others spell it L-A-O-Z-I. Anyway, it means the old master, essentially. And this book tells us about the leader of our country. Some people think that the book is actually a handbook for the Chinese emperor to know how to rule, how to govern. And it tells us that the worst leader is the one that everybody fears. Slightly better is the one that everybody hates. Slightly better is the one that people feel ambivalent about. Slightly better is the one that everybody loves. But the best leader and here is the sort of surprise punchline. The best leader is the one nobody knows. Not only do they not know him or her, but they don't know that that person even exists in the job. So if you're doing your job as a Taoist leader, you're so invisible and you're so effortless in your governance that the population thinks that things are just cruising along, everything is working, infrastructure supports their lives, laws and, and support services are always there for them and in their corner. And they believe that everything is great in the country because they are great. And because the people think they're so good, this is why they believe the country, you know, runs so well. And you can take that model and contrast it with you know, what we see in the world today with the growth of tyranny in so many countries, including our own. Um, let's go back to observing nature, because I think there is a parallel here. When you look at other animals on this great planet that we live on, we see more cooperation than domination amongst other species. And yet, as humans, we run ourselves the other way around. So, you know, it's interesting about that claim you just made. Actually, um, 
altruism and cooperation in evolutionary terms are arguably the defining characteristic of the human species. Yeah. It's actually not true that we don't cooperate compared to other animals. What is true, though, is that we have moved away from that core aspect of our of our species identity. And it may be that we've lost the lost touch with this great evolutionary advantage because we are so overcrowded that our genetics are sort of kicking in and everybody is in stress and panic mode. There are too many rats in the box, too many people on the face of the planet. So normal uh, natural curbs on behaviors and, and impulses uh, do not obtain. Is it that we're so overcrowded or we're so overstimulated or both? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I love to do that when someone is, is it A or B, I say yes. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I, I so often reject the binary idea. And so, yes, in, in this case, I think both of those examples, both of those points are, are, are right. And what you talk about in Mad Monk Manifesto is really coming back to ourselves as part of this process. So the minute we experience any sense of separation, the minute we experience ourselves as individuals, which is this is so characteristic of Western culture and not of Eastern culture, especially uh, historically, you know, this idea, I think, therefore I am, there's too much I in, in the Western world. And all that emphasis on I leads to greed and corruption, disconnection, disaffection, frustration, alienation, and suffering. The illusion that we are anything different than the turtles in the pond or the birds in the tree, that we are anything different than simply another glove for the great hand of life to animate is, is a pernicious illusion and it just makes us miserable. Yeah. So it's kind of like the interconnectivity of all things. My well-being is not separate from your well-being. Your well-being is not separate from the next person's. There is a, a relationship and a, and a necessary interdependence for our happiness, our contentment, and having a good life. The zero-sum game the slices of the pie, the one-upsmanship, the domination, the competition, all of these things are an illusion. They are something that our upbringing, our philosophy, our way of looking at the world has put in our head, and they're all wrong. And people who say that this is the way of nature this are not people who know very much about the way nature really works. Well, if we're, if we're buried in our computers, we're probably not connecting much with nature. And that's not knocking computers and technology. They're vital and they're important, but we get away from source, right? So, yes, of course. And I don't mind knocking computers and technology. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> um, there, there's, there's a big difference between knocking science and knocking uh, its do-boy technology, right? So science, pure science is, is, is a very Taoist idea. That's a process of inquiry and evaluation. And it is essential to understand the world. The early Taoists are, were scientists. 
But, you know, you can take anything and twist it into something uh, ugly if you want. And uh, while there are certain technologies that are, are certainly greatly beneficial to life on Earth, there are many that are not. And, you know, earlier when you mentioned your kids and how they want to, uh, you know, shortcuts to things and they want to s- express things in simple words and they want to have this instant gratification thing. This, of course, is not a, fun- a reflection on the character of your children. It's a reflection on the character of that generation, which is in turn a reflection on what we, uh, their elders, have created for them and forced them into. And the sooner they step out of that, turn off, disconnect, and go and and be with each other, hug each other, play ball, go outside, take a walk in the woods, uh, the better off we will all be. I agree. I mean, but I do rejoice when I hear, like I said, when I hear a vocabulary word, like one of my kids used the word pedantic the other day, I almost screamed. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! (laughs) You know, I, I have to be careful about my own prejudices about language because I, I have a lot of them. Um, and, and so uh, I, for example, don't love to hear the word like interjected, you know, every other sentence in, in some teen soliloquy. Um, I, I think it's probably best to keep language more accurate and richer. And when we begin to see the devolution of language as opposed to the evolution of language, then there is a concern. When the nuance of meaning is lost to language because people are doing it through keystrokes or gestures on a video, then, you know, we're losing something. Yeah, I agree. We are out of time. And I want to invite our listeners to visit Monk Yoon Ro, and that's spelled M-O-N-K-Y-U-N-R-O-U.com, Monk com on Twitter at Monk Yoon Ro, and on Facebook, that page is mad-monk-manifesto. Once again, mad monk Hyphen Manifesto. My guest today has been the author, Monk Yoon Ro, and the book we're talking about is Mad Monk Manifesto, A Prescription for Evolution, Revolution, and Global Awakening. And I have to say, this is a really good read. It's got a lot of really good information, good inquiry. You know, I think it's brain food, Yoon. Thank you so much. All I can say is that it's one thing to notice what's wrong and comment on it and talk about it, but it's another thing to do something about it. So I hope that uh, our listeners will go and get the book and put into practice uh, what's there. I hope so, too. Here comes the break. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, David K. Johnston and Monk Yoon Ru, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.